to invite you to turn over to Psalm chapter 3. As we continue in our sermon series through the Psalms, today we're going to look at the third Psalm. If you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find one in the Pew Bible there in front of you on page 532. It's a brief Psalm, so we're going to read all of it together. Psalm 3, the Psalm of David, when he fled from him. From his son, Absalom. Lord, how many are your foes? How many rise up against me? Many are saying of me, God will not deliver me. But you, Lord, are shield around me. My glory, the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep and I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not fear, though tens of thousands assail me on every side. Arise, Lord, deliver me from, deliver me, my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. From the Lord comes deliverance. May your blessing be on your people. This is the reading of God's word. You may have a seat. And as you do, we invite our kiddos to head out to Kingdom Kids. Marsha and our other Kingdom Kids workers are going to meet you back there and take them over to our Christian life, our, over to our education building, excuse me, where they're going to have a chance to learn and worship at their level. And as you probably already know by now, that's for those who are four years old through second grade. That's kind of out of nursery and... Still got the wiggles, though, so we have an opportunity for them today. As I mentioned, we are going through the Psalms together, and if you haven't joined us yet for this reading plan, I really want to encourage you to do it. Uh, there's, there's nothing to really sign up for. You just do it, and you'll find in the bulletin a um, bookmarker that has each week 10 Psalms. So last week we read 1 through 10 And basically what we're doing is we're reading two psalms a day, Monday through Friday, with the weekend as an opportunity to kind of catch up if you missed any of them. And so each week out of those ten, I will choose one of them. And I I kind of did an introduction to um, the psalms last week and covered one and two. And I got so excited about Psalm 3 that I said, i got to preach on Psalm 3. And I I read the rest of them, but we're going to camp out in Psalm 3. So each week out of the ten you will have read... I'm going to be preaching on one of them. So that's what we're doing. So I really want to encourage you to jump in on that reading plan as we're reading reading through the psalm. And over the next, I think it's like 14, 15 weeks, we'll be doing this together. And I think you'll be blessed by it. Well, I want to just pause right now and, uh, and pray for us before we dive into God's word. Would you pray with me? Father God, as Josh pointed out, we as a church have had a very tough week of loss. God, we continue to pray for the Lake family and for the Father, the Patton family, for the Freemans. There's others in our community that have experienced loss, many who have gone through sickness. All in the midst of a season where we're getting back to school. 
with challenges all around, God, we can get so fixated on those things. That's why you call us together on Sundays so that our eyes might look up to you. That we might have the opportunity to remind one another through song and through scripture and through prayer what is true. So God, I thank you for blessing us with the Lord's day that we can come and worship. Thank you for the songs that we have sung, for the reminder of how you've been faithful to us over the summer and all that we have experienced. And we're thankful for your, for your word that we have read. And I pray that you'd use it to challenge us, to encourage us, equip us, prepare us for a new week. That those who follow you and call on your son Jesus as their Lord and Savior, Father, that we would be a little bit different, a little bit more like him because we've been here. Father, I pray for those who are here this morning that are still searching out that relationship with you. God, I pray that they would know and hear clearly and respond to the good news of Jesus, that life with you only comes through him. So if we will open our word before you, we pray that you'd open our hearts to hear from you. That you might speak and we might hear and we might respond with our lives. We might live faithfully based on what you have shown us today. This is what we ask in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, King David, he's uh, often cited as the author of the Psalms, many of them, not all of them. And if he's not the author, oftentimes the setting of his life is the story happening underneath the Psalms. And those who have written some of these attribute them to him. Psalm 3 being early on in what we call the Psalter, the book of the Psalms, does something that we haven't seen in Psalm 1 and 2. It gives that little description under the heading, a Psalm of David. And it talks about his son Absalom. Now, Absalom just wasn't any of his sons. It was actually, you're not supposed to do this as parents. But Absalom was kind of his favorite. Absalom was kind of the one that resembled David the most. And it's got to be one of the most challenging stories. It's got to be up there. Maybe top ten, top five, I don't know. But it's got to be up there in one of the most challenging situations that you will find of anyone in scripture. The story is told in 2 Samuel and it goes something like this. King David, if you've been in church for a while, you know King David. If you haven't, you've probably heard the story of David and Goliath. Same guy, just a little bit later on in life. And now, of course, he is king over Israel. And there is trouble in his family. Now, we can always relate to that. Anytime we see there's trouble in someone's... And can I tell you, there's no perfect family in the Bible. If that comforts you, it comforts me to know that. There's no perfect... Every family's got their problems, got their dysfunctions, has their sins rooted deeply in Every family's that way. My family's that way. Your family's that way. And even King David doesn't escape from the flaws of family. He has a daughter from one woman whose name is Tamar. And then he has a son, Absalom. And Absalom loved Tamar. 
So it broke his heart when their other half-brother, Amnon, took advantage of her. The story is told in 1 Samuel four, uh, chapter 14. Maybe 2 Samuel. I think it's 2 Samuel. I've got my number mixed up here. Absalom is so angry. He's outside of his mind. Now you would think King David would do something about this situation. Here he has one son taking advantage of one of his daughters. And of course the whole family's upset. Perhaps Absalom most of all. But you read through this section of scripture and you find out that David doesn't do much of anything about the situation. So what ends up happening is Absalom takes the matters into his own hands. He says, Father, if you're not going to correct this egregious wrong that has happened in our family, I will do it. And so he devises a plan to get his half-brother Amnon out of the confines of Jerusalem, get him alone, and then he and his men kill him. And David is distraught. He is so upset about what has happened. Now, Absalom stays away. Kind of goes into hiding for a little bit. Three years, I believe, or two years. He's hiding away. And David's so upset, but he, he begins to get over it. And his love for his son causes him to want to call Absalom back, but... Absalom has killed his other son, Amnon. So through some interesting turn of events, David is finally convinced to bring his son Absalom back. But he says to his advisor Joab, he says, listen, okay, he can come back, but he's not going to live in the palace. And he's never going to see my face. So Absalom comes back home, knowing that he's going to be given safe passage. And once he's there, I don't know if he knew in, in advance, but once he got there, he realized, I can't go to the palace. I can't see my father. Why am I here? And he can't even get the ear of King David's advisor, Joab, to try to, you know, like broker a deal and get an arrangement, set something up. And so he sets fire to Joab's field that was next to his so that Joab would come to the field so that he could confront him and say, what's the deal? Get me a meet, get me in the palace, get me before my father. Why did I come all this way? And I can't even see him. And so they work it out, but they don't as with family, it always is the case. And so you have this situation between Absalom and his father, David. David's back in the city. And what he begins to do is he begins to... And, and it's not really clear. He wants to dethrone his father. And it's not clear, is it because his father did nothing about his sister Tamar? Or is it because his father wouldn't allow him to see him face to face? Or was it both? But he decides he's going to do everything he can to dethrone his father, King David. So in second, it is second Samuel. Sorry about that. Second Samuel chapter 15. I want to read to you exactly what he did because it's very clever and devious all at the same time. 
We read, in the course of time, Absalom provided himself with a chariot and horses and with 50 men to run ahead of him. He looked important. Looked like he had authority that he did not really have, right? Verse 2, he would get up early and stand by the side of the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone would come with a complaint to be placed before the king for a decision, Absalom would call out to him, what town are you from? He would answer, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel. Then Absalom would say to him, look, your claims are valid and proper, but there is no representative of the king to hear you. And then he would add, verse 4, if only I were anointed the judge of the land. Well, who's the judge of the land? King David. Then everyone who has a complaint or case could come to me and I would see that they receive justice. You see what he's doing. People are marching into Jerusalem to visit King David to seek out justice and he gets to them before they ever make it and lets them know, hey, I'm with you. I agree with you. Your cause is just. If I could do anything about it, I sure would. Verse 5. Also, whenever anyone approached him to bow down before him, Absalom would reach out his hand, take hold of him and kiss him. Absalom behaved in this way toward all the Israelites who came to the king asking for justice. And so he stole the hearts of the people of Israel. His plan worked. And so he does this for, I think, close to four years or so. And then what he does is he, he knows he's got enough support and he's got a big enough army to take the throne away from his father. So he goes and he leaves town and he gathers everybody outside of the city and they begin to work out their plan and what they're going to do. And David hears about this. And so he knows that if I stay... My son's going to come with his army. He's going to fight me with my army. And guess who's going to be the casualty of all of this? The people of Israel here in Jerusalem. And he doesn't want that, so he leaves the city. He takes his fighting men with him. And while he's leaving, he hears the news that not only is his son Absalom trying to dethrone him, But his most trusted advisor, Ahitophel, has been convinced to join his son. Now, what would you do? It's a hard thing to really picture, I think, to really put yourself in David's shoes. Here, your most favorite son is out to dethrone you. He's stolen away from you, your most trusted advisor, you've had to leave your home, you've had to leave your city, what would you do? In a moment like that, what, what would we do? Well, evidently, David wrote this psalm. He says, how many are my foes? How many rise up against me? It's not just his son and his advisor, it's all the, all the folks in their army. He's hearing from other people. It's over for David. God will not deliver him. If I were in David's position, it's hard to even imagine, but just the pain, the anguish, the heartache he must have felt. 
But here he is writing Psalm 3. He cries out to God. He doesn't sugarcoat it. He doesn't pretend like everything's okay. Everything's not okay. He lets God know everything's not okay. But he also trusted God. He trusted God, as the scripture says in verse 3, as the Lord who would be a shield about him. A shield back in the day would be animal skin stretched over some wood, and, and it would only be able to protect your front. And David says, you're better than that. You're better than just a shield that protects the front. You've got my sides and you've got my back. That's who God is to me. David says, you are a shield all around me. David says, you're the one who lifts my head up high. David says, you are the one that sustains me. David says, you are the one that delivers me. And in the end, David says, that is why I have no fear and I can rest at night. Because I know all that is true. What about us? I don't know about you, but I read that and I think, yeah, I've had some enemies in life, but nothing like this. You know what I mean? Like nothing like what David's going through. I've never had an enemy like that. Now, maybe some of you are saying, "Mm mm-hmm, you haven't met my boss. Don't shake your head, Rosemary. Josh, you're not allowed to respond to that. You never met my in-laws. I've had an enemy like that. My in-laws are great, by the way, if they're watching online. They really are. Maybe you have had an enemy like this. But something like this, probably not. Something like your own son turning against you, your most trusted advisor turning against you. It's unlikely any of us have a story quite like that. Maybe. But as I read over this, and this is something you're going to find throughout the Psalms, that there's a lot of talk of enemies. You've already realized that, right, reading through the first ten Psalms. There's a lot of talk of enemies. It's hard to make use of that in our own lives sometimes. We're not a king. We don't have an army. We're not facing someone who poses a mortal threat to us. And there I would say, actually... There is an enemy like that. And the very best way to lose to an enemy is to not know you're in a fight with one. The very best way to lose a fight with an enemy is to not know you're in a fight with an enemy. I was recounting a story to my son Jackson last week. He, uh, a while ago, when my grandmother left her house and moved in with my mother... We were over there, and we were just looking through things. We knew, you know, this is kind of, this is kind of a sad day. It was the end of uh, an era for us. We always gathered at her house for meals, and it was just, that was kind of home away from home, and now she's no longer there. No one's going to live there. And so we were just looking for, you know, small things that maybe we could take home with us. And one of them was a BB gun, and it was a BB gun given to my Uncle Michael, who had passed away. And, uh, you know, I mean, it, it, it's so weak. You, you, it's got the trigger thing, you cock it, you shoot it, and it just goes bloop, like that, you know. But 
you know, I just wanted to take it with us, you know. And so we did, and I cleaned it up and oiled it, and now it just goes, boop. So it goes a little bit further, so, but not much. And he's swinging this thing around in the backyard the other day. Remember Jackson? I said, no, 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 don't do that. You always treat a weapon, no matter what it is, any gun, you always treat it as if it's loaded and it's lethal. That's how you always treat a weapon, no matter what. And then I told him a story. One time I was visiting my friend. He was in college. I was in his room, in his dorm, and I was waiting for him to come in, and he had a paintball gun. All I ever knew of paintball guns, and it's not much, was they have this big CO2 canister on the end of them, right? This one didn't have that, so it's, you know, it's not dangerous at all. And so I thought, you know what, it's going to be funny if I cock it, you know, no, nothing's loaded in it, and I'll just pull the trigger, it'll make the noise, and it'll scare it, right? So that's what I did. I did not know that they actually make paintball guns that have a small CO2 canister that goes into some part of the gun. I didn't know that. So I shot my friend point blank in the chest, thank goodness it was the chest, with a paintball gun. I don't know if he remembers this story, but I definitely remember it as a story because it tells me always treat a weapon as if it's loaded and lethal. He cried a lot. And I laughed a lot, but it was still a bad situation. But he walked into the room not knowing he was in a paintball fight. Now, I didn't know it either. That put both of us in danger, right? We read the story of King David, and we might think, I don't have an enemy like that. And I would just want to say to you, it's the very best way to be defeated by your enemy. Because you do indeed have an enemy like that. And if there's any chance for victory, you have to know you're in a fight. Paul says it like this in Ephesians 6, starting in verse 10. He says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Paul is saying to his friends, You are in a battle. You need to be prepared. There is an enemy, the devil. And he says, our struggle isn't against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Paul is saying to the church, you do have an enemy. Jesus says to his followers, There is one that is out to steal and to kill and destroy, John 10.10. We have an enemy. And we have no chance of victory if we don't recognize that you and I are in a fight. And David had the advantage of knowing that without a doubt. Of knowing that his son and his advisor and their army are coming To take him down. We are in a fight. We have an enemy. Who has an army. Who seeks to steal and kill and destroy. And it may not be with big guns and an invasion. It may just be to put a little bit of space between you and God. It may be to convince you that he's. He's good, but he's not that good. 
It may be to cause you to question, well, God seems like he's mostly in control, but he's not totally in control. We have an enemy that's been around for a long time, very smart, very wise. Not wise in in the things of God, but wise in the things of the world. And he knows how to get at us. He knows for each and every one of us how to put a little space between us and God if we will let him. And his very best tactic is to be covert, to not be seen. He would be so glad if you never knew that he was in a battle against you because he knows if they don't see me, they won't see me coming. He will take the things you love. He will take the things you like. He will use them against you. He'll take some things that are true and twist them just enough that they're not true, which is why Jesus calls Satan the father of lies. What everybody says about you is true. You're worthless. Look around you in these circumstances. There is no chance you're getting out of this. You might as well just give up. There is no hope. There's not a silver lining. There's not a brighter day ahead of you. He will take the things that we feel, and though he does not read our minds, but he is so crafty, he can see the way that we live, and he knows what troubles us, and he'll take those things, and and he'll squeeze us with it so that we, we doubt God. If we let him, he is more than capable of putting a little space between us and God. He can never threaten your salvation. He can never take that away from you. But he can threaten your joy if you will let him. What we see in in David's life here is an incredible testimony of trusting God. It says, God, you protect me on every side. God, you are my sustainer and my deliverer. That's what he says in Psalm 3. So he's able to come back around and say, so God, I don't fear. I rest easy. You lift my head up. You may ask, where does that perspective come from? How does David get there? His favorite son, his trusted advisor, his army against him. How... How could he say these things? And I think there's a clue hidden right in the middle of this psalm. He says in verse 4, I call out to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. Now the holy mountain is in Jerusalem. It's where the temple was. And starting, you know, through... The wilderness wanderings, they had this tabernacle that was a forerunner to the temple. And, and they trusted that God met them there. That this was a place where we could take our guilt and our shame, take our sin, sacrifice an offering to God. God would be merciful to us. He would be present here. This is where God meets his people. And David says, I know you meet your people where they are. We have a temple to represent that. 
And what David knew as a shadow, we see as a solid reality. The temple and the sacrificial system, all of that was was painting a picture of what was to come. That what was a temporary way of dealing with sin and guilt and shame and all that stuff. It would separate us from God. All those lambs that were sacrificed to make amends with God, that there would be one that would come and do what they could not do and do it forever. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, Jesus himself. Jesus coming down and saying, I want to be with my people. Just as the the tabernacle and the temple represented God saying, I want to be amongst my people. Jesus, his life, go read John chapter 1. He comes and dwells with us to be with us, to be with his people. I think that's how David could say all these things is because he saw, even though it was a shadow of what was to come in Jesus, he knew God is with us. We are not left alone. The tabernacle, the temple represent that, but it's in Jesus that it becomes truer than ever, surer than ever. And when you go and read the New Testament, what what becomes of the old temple? It's actually destroyed around 70 AD, a little while after Jesus was crucified. But his followers understood that that temple, what it represented, has now become a reality in those who worship God. That those who follow Jesus become the temple. And God the Spirit resides in us. Which means we're never alone. Which means no matter what our enemies say, no matter what our great enemy, the devil, whispers in our ear, no matter how circumstances look, no matter what our feelings might tell us, we are not alone. It's not left up to us. We have a shield all around us. We have one who lifts up our head. Thank God. He does that for us. He is not far and distant. And Jesus, he has come near. So whether you have a human enemy that challenges your joy or or, or whether you recognize the work of the enemy Satan in your life, The good news of David that he experienced while running for his life in a more clear and fuller way is good news to us. That that same God that was with him is with us. The shadow of what he saw now we see concretely. And so we can say like he said, there's one who protects me from every side. There's one who sustains me. There is one who delivers me. So I can lie down and sleep and wake again. Verse 5. I can trust that this is the Lord. This is the one who will lift my head high. Verse 3. That is our God. And when you leave here today, if you're a follower of Christ, that is the God that goes with you. And if you have yet to come to that decision to trust Jesus, to make you a child of God, that decision can be made right here and now. The Bible tells us very clearly, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
That means you may not have walked in here with the Holy Spirit of God residing in your heart, but you can walk out of here with the Holy Spirit of God taking you every step of the way. And as Rosemary said, we're going to celebrate those who have come to that moment in their life next Sunday. And maybe that's a moment that God is calling you to. And if it is, I want to hear from you. We want to sit down and talk and we want to pray together. And we want to celebrate the work of God in your life. Because he is at work for each of us. For that, we can give thanks. Tonight, we can put our head on our pillows and sleep well. We can live without fear because he's with us. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the truths of your scripture, the truths of David's life, and how we can see the fulfillment of his hope in Christ. And I pray, God, that you would just remind us again and again as we go from this place to the next, from this day to the next, that we do not go alone. You are with us. Yes, we have an enemy, but we have one in us that is greater than the one that is in the world. And so you call us through your scriptures more than conquerors. And Father, I just pray for those who are wrestling with letting go of this idea that they have to be good enough. They have to know enough Bible. They have to have attended church more often. They've got to get some things straightened out in their life. And then they can come to you. That is the work of Satan. That's what he whispers in our ear. And it's not true. Every human being that has ever come to you has come as a broken man or woman. A broken boy or young girl. None of us come to you with it all figured out. And you wrap your arms around us and you say, I love you. I accept you not on the basis of who you are, but on the basis of what my son Jesus has done for you. I pray that that truth would just wash over those who have come seeking you but have not yet found you. God, that they would walk out of this place today knowing in their hearts that though they are great sinners, they have a great Savior and his name is Jesus. And Father, we just want to close and and worship you in song and thank you for who you are. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.